This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman, Dara Stay, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe, Rosenberg's New Verse, New Verse, New Episode. Hello again and welcome to episode 15 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that finds out everything that mattered in the post-war world and everything that explains the way the world is now, all dictated by Billy Joel's imagination and his ability to make major global events rhyme. I'm Tom Fordyce, this is Katie Puckrick and Katie, as always, we're ready to go when no other podcast does because no other podcast has Billy. No other podcast has Billy. Um, I'm starting to feel like all of the topics that Billy Joel is covering in We Didn't Start the Fire um, could tangentially include you and me, Tom. Yes. I mean, I think there might even be less than six degrees of separation between some of these topics. Not today, though. Not today. Um, We're talking about the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were tried and, spoiler alert, executed for being American traitors, being on the side of the commies during the Cold War. Did they uh, permeate your young consciousness, the Rosenbergs? This is one of the episodes, Casey, where I knew absolutely nothing about them. Like, we did Marilyn Monroe last time, but I knew nothing about the Rosenbergs. Were they part of your childhood growing up in the States? Yeah, um, not... Just, you know, on the horizon somewhere, you knew that there were uh, there was a couple, married couple, who were conspiring against America. I don't really know much more than that, um, other than it was obviously something that was above and beyond just criminals doing bad things, because the fact that it was a husband and wife with children... Husband and wife were put to death. I mean, that that's already, it, it builds in more sentimentality and emotion. And also there's kind of a question of, did they actually do the thing that they were accused of doing? Or was it even all that bad? So these are all the nuances that I would love to get into. And thank goodness we are joined again by the expert, Dr. Josh Hollins. He's a lecturer in U.S. history at the UCL Institute of Americas. And Josh, you were uh, you were here to talk about Senator Joseph McCarthy. And uh, welcome back to tell us about the Rosenbergs. Yeah, thank you very much. It's, it's great to be back. And um, again, uh, a dark stain on history is what you've brought me back for. Like yeah. Sorry, Josh. We, we, we trust <laughs> you to, uh, to, to wash these dark stains, at least... Off of our frontal lobes, if not America. <laughs> so what can you tell us about the Rosenbergs? Who were they? Yeah, so they were a, a married couple. They had uh, two young children. And during the 1930s, they were members of the Communist Party in the United States, which held um, it had something of an outsized influence in, in US um, politics in that era. Um, obviously, this is the era of the Great Depression, so there's economic turmoil. So they're both involved in the Communist Party in the 1930s, and Ethel was actually a clerk at a shipping factory 
and uh, helps to organise workers there against injustices and against against the economic turmoil of the era. Now, um, they they both leave the Communist Party in 1941, and later on, it seems like they might have jumped ship because it seems like you know the uh, U.S. state was onto them, and they're conducting espionage now, and and some of that's a bit murky still. So you said that Ethel was a secretary at a shipping company, and what did Julius Rosenberg do? Yeah, so he was an engineer inspector at the Army Signal Corps. So had a, a, quite an important job in the, in the Army. Um, he actually ends up losing his job. And he also leaves the Communist Party around the same time during the war. Um, so there's this kind of notion of, is he being found out? Is he worried mm. about being found out? Of How does he lose his job, though? Does he get fired? or? Yeah, he's fired from his job. Oh. And so, what, because he's a member of the Communist Party? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so he loses his job, and so there's this already this sense that he might be someone that should be looked at, that right. should be investigated. Um, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, as you say, end up being executed. They're the only two people executed um, by the US state in this era for um, espionage and, and secrets. And in fact, what they're actually convicted of is conspiracy to conduct espionage. So there's still so this that, kind of... there's a difference there, is there? So they're not, they're not convicted of actual espionage, or is this just... To the way the way it's worded, and yeah, it sounds like they're thinking about spying, yeah. but it didn't quite, you know, they didn't quite uh, fit the bill. And you'd want to be pretty certain you're going to execute two people who've got two kids. I'd quite like some certainty there. Yeah. Well, this is one of the issues because there's this kind of there's this area of doubt as to what exactly they were doing, and I think part of the the issue is that the government is resting on these documents that they're not too sure exactly who produce them you know they found this um, these documents that are state secrets um, atomic secrets so initially they go to um, Ethel Rosenberg's brother David Greenglass and um, accuse him and he points the finger towards Julius and mm. Ethel great and so I think Stitch part, up. Yeah, yeah part of the issue here for the state and why it goes for conspiracy is they're not exactly sure who did it but if they can get one of the others to, to name names to point the finger, then they can create a compelling um, case for conspiracy to do this. But at the time, I imagine, you know, this is the whole McCarthy era and uh, people have just pulled themselves out of World War Two, and it seems quite likely that we'll slide into World War Three. So I can imagine that there was heightened sensibilities. It was very volatile in America. And this whole idea of... Um, you know, finding finding enemies and spies amongst our myths. This must have been really attractive to Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, I, I came here before to talk about McCarthy and that whole era. And I think the way in which I really described it was, you know, it permeates society, but also it's this vicious circle. And so as some spies do come to the forefront, it helps to feed that wider kind of fear and paranoia in American society. Um, but that circle comes back around. And so because of, of the fear that has been created, when it comes to situations like this with Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, um, it's very much helps to feed into we need the, the toughest possible sentence. We need to make an example of, of these people. If we can prove anything, um, we need to um, make a real case out of them. I mean, they did have access. So um, David Greenglass uh, was stationed as an army machinist at the Manhattan Project in New Mexico. So and then the he's the brother of, of uh, Ethel Rosenberg. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So um, he certainly has access to potential knowledge and documents because the Manhattan Project is this project to 
create a nuclear weapon and then a hydrogen bomb and, and so on. But one of the things that really ensnares Ethel Rosenberg in this story um, is that David Greenglass gave some information to Julius Rosenberg. Julius Rosenberg phones his wife and says, type this up. And she puts a typewriter on the pile of table. Former and, secretary, works, she's good at it. Yep. You know, it, it's supposed to demonstrate her actually being a part of this kind of conspiracy. It's a hard, she's hardly culpable. I mean, it's her brother who who supplies the documents and then he points the finger at her. So obviously no family loyalty or any port in a storm, you're going to try and save your skin. Yeah. And so if we believe the account of a former Soviet undercover agent, Alexander uh, Veklasov, he says late, much later on, and this is why there's a lot of doubt of this, because it's all people change their story, chop and change across the course of the 20th century. Um, but Veklasov uh, says that he pressured Julius to recruit his in-laws and that both of them had already been supporters of communism and willing to secure documents. Okay. It's a murky case. This is so murky. Yeah, it's it doesn't reflect well on uh, on all those people. Although what I'm curious about is what was Julius and Ethel's motivation in passing secrets to the Soviets? Because you've established this idea that communists were idealists for progressive causes, I'm sure not aware of uh, Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union being an absolute dictator and, you know, mass murderer. But was their idea that uh, they wanted the supremacy, they sought the supremacy of the Soviet Union and that, you know, did they have this idea that that was where Nirvana was? What was their motivation? Well, I mean, this has been hotly debated because the Rosenbergs uh, maintained their innocence right up until their executions. And so we don't get a sense, really, I did this before this ideal or, okay. or any of this, right? Um, but what really helps to ensnare the Rosenbergs is really their politics. And so because they're both former members of the Communist Party of the United States, um, you know, throughout the trial, you have that time of a rising anti-communism. They really appear to be traitorous um, due to political ideology. It's a great question, that, Katie, because it doesn't sound like they've made a huge amount of money from this. It's not about personal wealth. And there is something quite attractive about people doing stuff for their ideals. I don't know if, if Julius and Ethel have started off almost doing this for, in their heads for, for a good reason, and then they've become ensnared, and then they're out of their depth, and then the next thing they know, because they, you know, they're American citizens, they're, they're immigrants to America... Yeah, Tom, it seems like they bit off a little bit more than they could chew. Um, idealism is a, it gives you an idea that you're a great person. It's like to, to act on that is almost like a selfish thing in a way, because it's like, look, I'm such a great person because I have these uh, strongly held morals and values that I'm going to act on, not like the other cowards. And perhaps it's one of those things that, that you don't, think it through. I mean, we can only speculate because as you say, Josh, they they got to the to the gallows and to the electric chair uh, and uh, to the very end, maintain their innocence. Yeah, they did. Um, this is a really interesting topic, the Rosenbergs, because over the course of the 20th century, as the USSR fades um, and you know anti-communism becomes less of a thing in US society, we get lots of new documents being released all the time. And so in the mid-1990s, we get the Venona documents that are kind of interceptions of KGB telegrams by the CIA in the 
um, early part of the war, but they're only released towards the end. And from those, historians have concluded that Julius uh, Rosenberg did run uh, a large military <sighs> and industrial spy ring. Oh. Um, but there has still been some doubt whether he was really involved in atomic espionage or the extent to which they really knew what type of documents they were sharing and of course some of those things we don't particularly know they, they might have thought they were sharing other types of documents they might have known that they were going for the atomic bomb i am curious about whether the american public followed the trial was there radio or television broadcast of any of it yeah, so television really becomes uh, a central part of, of US society in this era. I think I've mentioned this on your podcast before, but 3 million people owned TV sets at the start of the decade and by the end, 55 million. And so you're getting um, more and more interest. Now, actually, while there probably were news reports, I, I don't think that there actually was... Um, a television kind of broadcast of okay. the trial. The trial um, takes place very rapidly. It's wrapped up within 13 days. The deliberation by the jury itself is only um, eight hours long to come to its guilty verdict. Wow. So this was not one of these things that was milked to further the patriotic agenda of America. It was almost kind of just quickly swept under the carpet. It's interesting because it's kind of in the state's interest to wrap it up relatively quickly they want a guilty verdict and when they've had it they want to move on because of course this is embarrassing for the united states it's embarrassing for the state department it's embarrassing for the cia for everyone that it's been possible that these documents have been leaked and it's easy for them in a sense to kind of point the finger and say these are the people to blame but there's still something that kind of suggests in in the minds of ordinary people well how did our government let this happen? Oh. And so you you very much get um, the State Department, Secretary of State uh, Dulles intervenes a lot here. And it's more in terms of newspapers around the execution. And he says, we don't want this to be kind of glorified. We don't want all the gory details. You just say the case has been held in a dignified and restrained fashion. And, and that's it. And it's interesting because the media does seem to, to kind of listen to him and, and go along with it. And I think partly it's because they almost get their fingers stung before the trial. The historian Laurie Clune has done a really interesting job, uh, quite a fabulous job of examining newspaper reports and the impact of the Rosenberg's trial abroad. And um, she recounts this um, incident where the Rosenberg's sons visit their parents at Sing Sing Prison on Valentine's Day. And this happens just after President Eisenhower has affirmed their death penalty. So there's all of these um, social movements that are rising up to, to ask for clemency for the Rosenbergs to say, OK, well, you know, they might have done wrong, but should they be put to death? And so the sons are pictured at Sing Sing Jail visiting their parents. And how Valentine's old are those Day. sons? So the sons are, are quite young, 11 and 6. Oh, and, wow. Uh, Laurie Clune, the historian, notes that newspapers around the world ran pictures of the Rosenberg's young sons at Sing Sing holding Valentines oh, and dear. you know visiting both oh. of their parents separately and this idea that they're helping to boost morale and it really winds embassy officials up and so oh, yeah because you don't want to humanize the you know the evildoers yeah exactly and so in, in places like Cuba um, embassy officials are, are complaining that it's tugging at the heartstrings they really kind of put pressure on the government to say don't you realize that this is propaganda that's going to play into the 
the communist hands and um you know certainly there's there's movements that do emerge not not specifically simply out of, of that moment but people do um ask for clemency there's protests in um paris in london in rome albert einstein gets involved yeah oh really wow who else is getting involved yeah so lots of the the art world um picasso frida carlo um, Diego Rivera, but also intellectuals, um, Einstein, John Paul Sartre. And it really plays into uh, a lot of the concerns about how this is being received abroad, because obviously we, we're in this bipolar world of the US as a superpower and Russia as a superpower. And this is what's fueling all of these concerns, right, about nuclear capabilities. And um, it, yeah, so it's really interesting to see what kind of happens here. And I mentioned the historian Laurie Clune. Her book is called uh, Executing the Rosenbergs, Death and Diplomacy in a Cold War World. And there's a great uh, letter in there from the US ambassador to France, uh, C. Douglas Dillon. And he details how it actually looked in Europe Um and of course, France and Britain are important allies in that Cold War. And he says, French people with all political leanings feel that the death sentence is completely unjustified from a moral standpoint and is due only to uh, the political climate peculiar to the United States. Now, the, the Rosenbergs, if executed, will be victims of what the European press freely terms McCarthyism. And he warns that the executions could do a lot of damage to U.S. Uh, relations abroad. I love this idea that uh, us in America were like, hey, you know, we're taking care of business and we're, you know, plugging the leaks. And in the rest of the world, they were just going, you Americans are neurotic and paranoid. And we live right next door to the USSR and we're not even as freaked out about it. And of course, things haven't really changed. America's still overreacting to silly little things. Well, after that, I need to collect myself for a moment, so let's take a break for some ads. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. I just saw this quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, the uh, existentialist philosopher, and he described the trial as a legal lynching which smears with blood a whole nation. By killing the Rosenbergs, you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice. Magic witch hunts, autos, defay, sacrifices. We are here getting to the point. Your country is sick with fear. You are afraid of the shadow of your own bomb. Wow. But then you put that against the words of the judge at their trial. Mm. And the judge says... I consider your crimes worse than murder. And I think he does that because the Korean War is going on, Josh, is it? So is the judge basically blaming the Rosenbergs for the Cold War conflicts that have come subsequently? It's almost like they've evened up the playing field, therefore the Soviet Union is now this... I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a thing for a judge to say. Well, he's making them a scapegoat, it seems like. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, context is central here because the Korean War was really just starting to take off. I mean, and and Judge Kaufman calls upon the specific figures. He say 50,000 casualties already. Who knows how many millions more innocent people may pay the price of your treason? And it's interesting because they're not tried for treason. They're tried for conspiracy to commit espionage. And so in that way, you do get that sense of that wider context playing in here. The Cold War seems to be heating up. There's, you know, Americans are fighting in in Korea. The um, Soviets now have atomic capabilities, and so who are you going to blame for that? And McCarthy is obviously blaming people in uh, the State Department and saying, well. It's this cabal of um, people that are commies and they're trying to uh, ruin our uh, foreign policy. And others are, are pointing the finger at Julius and Ethel and saying, well, you've helped to speed this up. And as we mentioned earlier, we're not too sure whether they actually did speed it up or not. Wow. Katie, I've got this picture of Julius Rosenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just want to describe it because I always like to get in my head a, a sense of what these people, these great actors in history look like. Mm-hmm. And he looks like such an ordinary man for the impact that he's had wittingly or unwittingly and the the things he's blamed for. He's wearing a a double-breasted suit. He's got a small pair of round glasses. His hair swept back, little pencil moustache. His trousers are strangely short (laughs) and he's got them turned up. But he looks, he could be a bank clerk. He could be the sort of person, if you lived in that period in American history, he's the sort of person who lives next door. I'm looking at a, another picture of the two of them behind bars. And just because the angle of the camera, which is sort of shooting up to their faces, they're sort of looking quite superciliously down at the camera. And I'm just that picture where they look a little haughty and uh, not very contrite. It makes me wonder, Josh, if you have an insight about whether how sympathetic they were considered. Like, do, do you know if uh, Americans at the time felt like there was doubt or um, was this whole situation just kind of rushed past uh, so quickly that people couldn't really focus in on it? Well, there certainly was uh, a protest movement around um, the US and and people hold demonstrations in Union Square, much more calling for clemency so that they don't receive the death penalty. But actually, uh, a Gallup poll in January uh, 53 indicated that 73% of Americans agreed that the punishment for treason should be death. But as we mentioned earlier, they're not actually tried for treason. It's, um, you know, this becomes very murky water. And I think it, it gets lost here, um, some of the nuances. This is the, the Red Scare era. People are very much um, fearful. They're worried about these issues, as, as we say, that they think that the Soviets have capabilities, that um, there could be a war that comes to American shores. But did the prosecutors effectively demonstrate without a reasonable doubt that Ethel Rosenberg especially, but also Julius, were co- co-conspirators in treason? And I think, you know, the evidence that they relied on was very flimsy. Mm. I've got this image in my mind, Katie, of a spy as like a lone wolf, as a maverick who has, you know, the the whole James Bond thing. They have no family. They have no connections. So it's really quite startling to think of this married couple who are in their early 30s when this is happening. And they've got two young kids. It seems a very human face of it. Well, I guess... One reason why spies are typically lone wolves is that uh, you can operate with impunity and you're not troubled by the uh, implications of your actions. And the thing that 
makes me think uh, the Rosenbergs either weren't as guilty as uh, they were pronounced or didn't quite see through the consequences of their actions was the fact that they did have children. And normally as parents, you know, you would just think you have to do whatever to make sure your children are protected. So, um, I mean, that is definitely an interesting thing. And, And also the more people you involve in any kind of spying enterprise, the the more leaks potentially are there because there's more mouths to blab. I mean, certainly in the case of Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, I mean, he went on to say, uh, you know, he, he refused to express any remorse for his actions. And he, he ended up saying, uh, I didn't want to sacrifice my wife and my children uh, for my sister. Wow. So... You know, he he had priorities there. It's just really interesting because that only really comes out very late in in the late nineties and two thousands that account because David Greenglass and his his wife Ruth um, get to assume new identities. They get to continue in having like family lives and stuff. And this reporter from the New York Times hounds him. He finds his identity eventually and hounds him for uh, an interview. And eventually he gets it, and the book comes out in I think two thousand and. One, But it's interesting, isn't it? Because there is as much on David Greenglass in this moment as there is on the Rosenbergs. Sure. They kind of get these shorter sentences. They get to recreate their lives. And obviously, um, David Greenglass becomes a bit of a uh, a cultural touchpoint in America. I think, um, I don't know if we're supposed to mention Woody Allen, but in Woody Allen films, there's this kind of um, joke, right, in terms of he's like a brother to me and then he says like the punchline is David Greenglass like oh. the, the punchline being that you you would sell anyone out for your own sake and of course he kind of portrays himself as I'm looking after my family not my sister um, but yeah there's a sense that this goes into American culture as well yeah it, it seems to last Katie doesn't it so the, the, the trial is over in what you say 13 days Josh yeah the trial is over in 13 days but the long tail on this investigation the mystery carries us all the way into the 21st century you get a Bob Dylan song about Julius and Ethel the opening lines of Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar talk about the Rosenbergs trial so it's for, for a short trial the mystery seems to have, have carried into the next 40-50 years. Well I mean there's also the drama of people being put to death and um, I mean that was also notable that it was a, a couple who were executed I mean that that wasn't the usual thing either, I gathered. And how were they executed? So they were um, executed by the electric chair in Sing Sing Prison. And uh, not to go into too many gory details, but Julius uh, Rosenberg dies after one blast of uh, electricity. Um, but Ethel, it takes three Uh, And and this is one of the things that obviously the State Department are trying. They don't want details like that out. Right. Because it it humanizes them. It took them so long to kill Ethel. Yeah, her heart's still beating like, well, zap her again. Yeah, and of course, Ethel had really been the one that had struck a lot of people. You know, she's a mother. She's portrayed as a housewife by the defense. Um, And, you know, there's lots of gendered implications here that we should go into. But. the reports of the executions lead more people to protest as well, especially um, abroad. There's this sense that America has, has kind of done wrong here. Right. It's so brutal. And I mean, not least because two little kids are orphaned by the state's action. 
Yeah. And I think what's really particularly interesting uh, in this moment is, is really the way in which the, the trial was gendered. So historians speculate that Ethel received a disproportionate punishment because she had overstepped those traditional female boundaries. Mm. And so as Erica Ryan points out, in an era that was framed by visions of family life as a bulwark against communism, a mother refusing to cooperate with her with the government and thus potentially orphaning her two young sons drew immense criticism and there's these stories of uh, J. Edgar Hoover first he's the head of the FBI um, first disapproving of the death penalty in her case precisely because she was a mother um, but changed his mind when she appeared to put silence before her children and so she she feeds into this stereotype of a communist mother that um, it's not her own children but the cause and so you know this is where you start to get this sense that they want to make a um, example out of her and President Eisenhower tells his own son that he refuses clemency to Ethel in the days leading up to their execution despite the fact that she was a woman and because she was the strong and recalcitrant character while her husband was the weak one that's um, extraordinary that, that he would make some sort of judgment on someone's life based on a reading of their character rather I, than the letter of the law well that this is complete new information to me you guys and it's disgusting um but i'm having a flashback <laughs> to being a young teenager staying out past my curfew with my little boyfriend and I came in the house and I my dad was so angry at me and I said don't blame Chris who was my boyfriend I said don't blame him uh, I know we stayed out too late um, it was my fault and my dad said in a very sinister and dark intonation I know it was your fault because Eve tempted Adam. Whoa. And so my dad was really hardcore Catholic, said this was par for the course, but that always stayed with me that, well, you know, just as Ethel Rosenberg, um, you know, terrified, I'm sure, but also just wanting to stand by her man and stand by her values, she's condemned for that because she's not acting in a way, you know, in a biblically prescribed way. Yeah, absolutely. It's also that sense of motherhood, isn't it? It's we're in the post-war era. Women are supposed to be returning to the home now because the, the war's over. They're no longer supposed to be employed. Men are now the breadwinners again. You get that sense of domestic containment that we talked about in the McCarthy episodes that women are supposed to be in the home. They're supposed to be mothers. And if someone is so willing to, to kind of say, I'm going to put silence over or, you know, ideals perhaps over my kids, then... They need then to be taken down. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes a problem for the state. And it's interesting because there's there's these little stories that come out and um, I haven't, you know, I haven't gone into all of the evidence and stuff, but there's these stories that um, come out in some of these accounts that some of the prosecutors are saying, well, we only pushed for Ethel to have the death sentence because we wanted to get her to talk and she calls our bluff <gasps> and so it's this you know the way in which people are specifically women as well because they're using these gendered aspects of this is your place and you should know it and yeah and it backfires on the state department because of course now they are putting a woman to death for the first time since um someone was tried in in the conspiracy to kill uh, abraham lincoln so it's almost over it's almost 100 years later since oh. the last woman's executed by the state that um 
you know, it, it kind of backfires on, on the department too. It's a tawdry business, is Katie, isn't it? I started off this episode thinking this is a sort of murder mystery slash whodunit, did they do it? And now it just feels like everyone messed up. It does. And as we were talking about uh, the idea of passing secrets along and their motivation, like was it because they were idealistic? Uh, Was it just that they wanted a little bit of glory? And then the fact that it ends up snowballing. Speaking of snow, it reminds me of Edward Snowden being a whistleblower in 2013 when he uh, leaked highly classified information from the National Security Agency in the U.S. And, of course, now he's a, a resident of, of Moscow uh, because he realized when he was on the lam from authorities in America, there was probably no place for him you know, left in America. But it does seem that... Um, you know, you probably start out doing something that you think is for the right reason. And then before it ends up, you realize that maybe you've basically sacrificed your former life, if not your life. And this rolls on, Josh, doesn't it? There's, there's, a, there's a point when Barack Obama is in office and people are still trying to get a pardon for Ethel in 2015, all those years later. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to kind of trace what happened to the Rosenberg children as well, because they really, f- you know, fly the flag for their parents. And um, Ethel sent the boys a letter proclaiming their parents' innocence um, just before the execution. And you know, the, the two Rosenberg children um, really take that and and kind of say, well, our, our parents were innocent. Now. Um, the the two children, Robert and Michael, were adopted and raised by another couple who are very interested in their own right, Abel and Anne Mirapol. And Abel Mirapol was a socialist, um, famous for writing the anti-lynching song Strange Fruit, made famous by Billie Holiday. That is really interesting. Yeah. Incredible. And interesting that um, he was a white man who wrote this song about black lynching that was made famous by so many different singers. Wow, I didn't know that. It's an interesting connection. Yeah. Now, Robert and Michael take the Mirapol's name, so they're Robert and Michael Mirapol, and they spent most of their lives, up till today still, trying to clear their parents' names, first with a 1976 book, We Are Your Sons, that memorialised their parents' deaths and argued that they were innocent. But as fresh evidence um, has been released from various sources, such as the FBI and US Counter Surveillance, and the testimony of those former Russian agents, they have accepted now, I think, that their father spied for Russia, um, but not that he shared atomic information, and they still don't accept that their, their mother played any part. And I think that goes back to those pushes for... Um, a pardon by the president and by Obama last, which has still not come about. And I think that's partly because there is still these seeds of doubt. And also, as you as you mentioned, Edward Snowden, there's still these things going on and that wider kind of context of, say, the, the 2016 election, the 2020 election. What's mm. Is Russia playing a part here as well? Mm. Katie, how do you feel about the Rosenbergs, having learned all the stuff we have today? I feel sympathetic to them. I feel like uh, they were kind of clowning around in an area they shouldn't have been messing with, but I think they definitely were made scapegoats. It's the idea for me that 
why they became, why they ended up with the political views they did. If you've grown up in New York in the Great Depression, then it's very easy to imagine yourself ending up with those sort of views. You would see unimaginable poverty. Yeah, you'd see financial inequity, people starving, no work, um, and this utopia of communism, which promises, you know, everybody's on a... Uh, even playing field. Everybody has a job. Everybody has a purpose. I mean, it sounds great. You know, universal health care, all of that. And uh, every man and woman is equal. Uh, Gender equality, uh, as well as racial equality, of course, uh, in the Soviet Union, probably certainly in in Russia, you didn't really experience so much uh, racial diversity anyway, so it wasn't that much of a question. But yeah, I'm totally sympathetic to the idea of people choosing communism as a utopian, progressive way of life. In a naive way, not knowing what communism would end up looking like, well, what not, was going on. Not necessarily knowing you know, how bad Joseph Stalin was and how he was just fully as horrible as Adolf Hitler. You know, they're all cut from the same dictatorial, authoritarian, murderous cloth. But, um, but the ideals are certainly uh, fine. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But yeah, I think they they definitely were made an example of. Makes sense to me, Katie, why Billy Joel put them in there. They grew up in New York. The Rosenbergs are uh, immigrants to New yeah. York. He's, he's a kid from the Bronx. Yeah. Not to mention that it has, a, you know, a catchy three syllable. Which is what Billy likes. He, he lo- loves a rhyme. He does love a rhyme. He does love a rhyme. Bit of cadence. Uh, and you know what? It's always good to have villains. There's a lot of villains in We Didn't Start the Fire. Uh, And they're intriguing because they're kind of on the cusp of being heroes as well, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. So do we feel Billy's come up trumps once again? I think that Billy uh, is justified in his choice of the Rosenbergs. I think they're they're a fine addition uh, to his uh, categories of (laughs) late 20th century. Yeah, hats off to Billy. And hats off to Josh Holland. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was good fun. If you enjoyed that, why not check out the back catalog and listen to some of our other episodes? Pretty good idea, right? We talk about everything from Red China to Joe DiMaggio. And if you're up to date and you still can't get enough insatiable, then Tom, why don't you sell us on the Joe Marler Show? Oh, Katie, the Joe Marler Show. It's fun. It's fascinating. Could blow your mind in the same way we hope this show does. It's Joe Marler and me tagging along for a ride, meeting the most interesting people that you've never heard of and finding out how they do the jobs they do. Well, I hope that you're going to book me on that show one day. You're coming on. I hope so. Never heard of me. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. 
We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.